It's good to be here this morning. I don't get to uh, the Attridge congregation very often, so it's always nice when I do see lots of old friends, some older than others. <laughs> yeah, I won't say anything else about that. <clears throat> um, so, what's the darkest place you've ever been? I don't mean <laughs> spiritually dark, that could be true too, but I'm thinking more physically dark. The darkest place you've ever been? I think for me, probably the darkest place has been was an uh, abandoned mine shaft. Years ago, I was in a mine uh, that people had given up on, and uh, <laughs> we got way into this place, and somebody thought it would be funny to turn off the flashlight, flashlights. And uh, I've never experienced darkness like that before. You, if you've experienced that, you can't see your hand, you can't see anything. And uh, it was really interesting. I found myself quite quickly afraid of the dark. I don't know, maybe it was because I thought that my friend with the flashlight was going to sneak off and not turn it back on and I was going to be left there. A few uh, weeks ago, there was a, a story that caught the world's attention of these boys from the soccer team who are trapped in a cave. And uh, I probably, a lot of us in this room followed this story, and it was really interesting um, just how they were rescued, uh, that actually all the boys lived, they survived it, uh, is really quite a miracle, you know, when you think that how far they were trapped underground and all that. But as I was listening to the story, I was thinking about this idea of darkness and how, you know, how long does light last? Like, they're in pitch dark for nine days or something before somebody found them. And I thought, probably it was, probably they, their batteries would have run out or whatever. And now, apparently they didn't. Apparently they still had a little bit of light when they were discovered. Um, I don't know how that works either because, you know, for nine days, who would want to ration the phone or the flashlight or whatever it is that's giving you light, but apparently they had a little bit of light. But I just can imagine them sitting there, you know, wondering, is this it? Are we ever getting out of here? And seeing someone coming in the distance, seeing someone coming up through the water with a light, um, it would have been, I think, quite amazing. Um, So sometimes I wonder, you know, why are people afraid of dark? Why am I afraid of dark? Is it because I can't see? Is it because of the unknown? Because you don't know what's there? Is it something else? Are you afraid of dark? So what if you had a light source that would never run out, that you could rely on always? And maybe now we think, hmm, not just physical darkness, but other kinds of darkness. Today we're looking at Psalm 27, which talks about light and fear, and a bunch of other things. I'd like to read this psalm for you. Um, it's not going to be on the screen, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, which probably almost no one has here. So you're welcome to read along in whatever version you have, or you're also welcome to just listen. Um, if you just listen, you will be kind of like most of the people who have heard this psalm over history because they couldn't read and they were listening to it. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I will be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me, nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Let's pause and pray again. Father, thank you for these words of Scripture um, that come to us from a person, from a situation, um, but I think have something to say to us today, even like they did to that person who wrote them. I pray this morning that you would Help us see what that is for us, for me, for each person sitting in this room, that we would be able to see what you have for us to hear, uh, to hear what you have for us to see this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as I've been uh, thinking about what should be the title, <laughs> you're supposed to come up with a title when you do a teaching thing like this. Here's my title, Light So Strong You Never Have to Fear, But Don't Forget to Wait Because Waiting is the Best Way to Take Advantage of the Light and Strength of the Lord. <laughs> so that was too long. Uh, the, the sermon discussion notes that you can get don't have this on it. <laughs> uh, but for me, this psalm has always actually carried a lot of meaning, a lot of significance. Um, as I read through it, maybe you even noticed this, but a lot of songs have actually been written out of this psalm. 
Uh, the Lord is my light has showed up in lots of different songs. So it's actually something that's, that's um, kind of a highlight for a lot of people when they look at the Psalms. So I'm going to talk about a few things related to these Psalms. Some of them are just really interesting to me, and I hope they're interesting to you. Um, and I hope they help us maybe see things or have perception of this Psalm that maybe we haven't had before. Um, or maybe if you've never read this one carefully, maybe for the first time you might see something in here. And, and I'm hoping and praying that it will be significant for you, that it will connect with, with you, with your spiritual journey. So first, a little bit about the context. Uh, how did, where do we get this from? So it's a Psalm of David. King David wrote it. He was one of the kings of uh, Israel, one of the very early kings. Um, and the circumstances of this psalm um, are actually quite interesting. So one of the most ancient versions of the Old Testament, um, it's called the Septuagint, had um, another thing in front of this psalm. So most of our Bibles say Psalm of David. The Septuagint actually said a Psalm of David before he was anointed. (laughs) So you think, well, what does that mean and how could that be significant? Uh, David was anointed three separate times. The first time was by Samuel in Bethlehem, right before his fight with Goliath. So that's when he took on the giant and he won that one. Um, the second time was after the death of Saul, when the men of Judah anointed David king over Judah. So that's part of the kingdom of Israel. And the third time was seven and a half years later when he was anointed king over all of Israel. Three different anointings. It's likely that David wrote this psalm early in his life after his first anointing, but like it says, before the other ones. Likely, this psalm was written when David was fleeing Saul. So Saul is king. Saul is sometimes David's friend, sometimes David's enemy. Half the time he wants to kill David. At this point, he wanted to kill David. So David's running for his life. He's fleeing. Um, And it's very likely that the story about King David hiding in a cave when Saul was looking for him, and Saul actually came into the cave, and they a very interesting story that you could read, but that it's very likely this psalm was written right after that. So the memory of the cave is there for David. We talked about how places underground are dark. That might help us understand when David says, the Lord is my light. If he's just come out of a cave, that makes sense. Um, In uh, another psalm, David writes, From the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle, or sacred tent, or pavilion. In a secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me on a rock. We read that in this psalm. And um, I found it interesting that the word for tabernacle or tent or pavilion is often translated cave. That's partly why they think that maybe David wrote this right after the time of hiding out in the cave. So maybe that helps a little bit in thinking, right, here's a guy who's being pursued. Somebody wants to kill him. He's actually being betrayed by another guy who doesn't show up in this psalm. Um, And he's in the dark. He's in the cave. And he writes, the Lord is my light. So Psalm 27 has a number of metaphors or descriptions of God. Um, I'm going to talk about a few of them, but there are a number of them here. So the first 
actually three of them in the first verse. We're going to talk about those. So the first one is, the Lord is my light. Um, so believe it or not, in the Hebrew Bible, outside of the Psalms, God is almost never called light. It's not an Old Testament thing, except in the Psalm. But in the New Testament, we see lots of stuff about God as light. In fact, we see Jesus as light. So, um, in John, and John writes a lot about light, but in John it says, in him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. That's John 1. Uh, Jesus said himself, I am the light of the world. That's in John 8 and 9. And during the Passover, when Jesus was talking to his followers, he said, I have come as a light to the world, that whoever believes in me shall not abide in darkness. And that's John 12. First John, same writer, different book, says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So, The New Testament actually brings lots of sense of light to the identity of God. Not so much the Old Testament. The idea of light in this psalm is very concrete. Uh, So it's it's not abstract. (laughs) Uh, It's bright, clear, daylight, morning. That's the meaning of that word there. Now this is interesting in that, uh, remember that the people of Israel are surrounded by lots of other nations. And in many of those nations, they actually worship the lights that are in the sky. They worship the sun and the moon and the stars. And so for David to say, the Lord is light, Yahweh is light, is more than just saying, I hope I get out of the cave. It's actually also a statement to anybody who cares that we don't, that God is the source of light. Um, and that's, that's very interesting in light of the Surrounding culture. Um, yeah, he's saying that God is the source of light and that um, without God, no light exists. So that's the metaphor, the description of light. The second metaphor that we see here is the metaphor of salvation. So he says, the Lord is my salvation. Uh, again, something interesting, but the Hebrew word for salvation is a version of the word Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus. So when he says the Lord is my salvation, he's actually foreshadowing the coming of Jesus hundreds of years later. Remember what the angel said to Joseph in a dream? He said, and she, Mary, will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. For David, salvation is the ultimate place of safety. So the third metaphor is the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Uh, the word for stronghold can also be translated fortress or defense. So it's protection. In another psalm, David describes the Lord and his rock and his fortress, which is the same word. So this picture of God being light, stronghold, and salvation. That's all in the first verse. I find that very interesting for somebody who's trapped in a cave. Then David asks two questions, and you feel like they're rhetorical. So they really he knows the answer already, but the two questions are, 
Whom shall I fear, and of whom shall I be afraid? Whom shall I fear, and of whom shall I be afraid? Um, as I was thinking about this, it occurred to me that fear can be negative. And that may be part of what David is saying, using the word as a negative thing. So when you're afraid of something, it's basically to live without confidence. It's to live possibly without confidence in God. So the answer to that question, who should I be afraid of, is no one. That's the answer to that rhetorical question. Or the only person to be afraid of is the Lord himself. But fear can also be positive. And this is actually common in the Bible where fear is positive. The word fear carries lots of meanings. Could be emotion, could be reverence, could be good behavior. Um, But the word fear in the Old Testament is actually translated worship 19 times in the NIV. So when you read, worship the Lord and fear him only, you're actually seeing the same word there. So when David says, whom shall I fear, it's not just who shall I be afraid of. It's actually, who shall I worship? Um, And the answer is God, Yahweh. That's David's answer. 1 Kings 18 says this, Yet I, your servant, have worshipped, that's the same word as fear, the Lord since my youth. A little bit later in the psalm, David says, Teach me your way, O Lord. Um, (laughs) I spent quite a few years of my life working in camp ministry. And uh, one of the things that most camps do is archery as a skill, where you teach children how to shoot stuff. (laughs) Maybe wrong with that picture, but uh, you try not to have them not shoot each other. And I, I used to love teaching archery, and I actually did, taught lots of, kids and teenagers how to shoot a bow and arrow, and that was fine. A little bit later in life, I became more serious about shooting a bow and arrow, and so I bought my first real bow, not like the camp bows. And uh, it was made by the Bear Archery Company, so that's B-E-A-R, not B-A-R-E. And it was a pretty good bow, I think. I could not hit the broadside of a barn with it. It's terrible. My friend and I used to go out and hunt gophers with these <laughs> And when you shoot a bow, an arrow with a strong bow like that, they really bounce. And so if you miss your target, they end up, you never find them. They just go forever. Hopefully you don't hit the neighbor over there. So it took me a while to figure out that I'm left-handed and I bought a right-handed bow. <laughs> You'd think I would be smart enough to figure that out, but not. So I uh, sold it, and I bought a, a left-handed bow. And a miracle happened. <laughs> yep, I was able to hit the target. Um, I was going to bring my bow today, but I thought it might be sketchy. <laughs> I'd be afraid. <laughs> yeah. I could have tied it in with whom shall I fear, but anyway, I didn't. Uh, so the word for... Teach me, the word for teach, teach me your way, is actually a word associated with archery. It could be translated, um, I got it here. It could be translated um, cast or throw or shoot. 
So if you know anything about David, you know that David is a military guy. David's a fighter. For him, the metaphor of archery actually is really good. And so we might read teach as in instruct, and that's fair, that's part of it. But when you add it to the, this incredible technical skill of hitting the target, I think it brings some deepness to this term that wasn't there. Um, and learning how to shoot straight not only involves having the right equipment, <laughs> a left-handed bow instead of a right-handed one, it also involves learning technique, which is also really connected with the idea of teaching. So I think when David says, teach me your ways, he's talking about something a lot more than just give me some information. He's actually talking about how to orient his life. So then skipping to the end of the psalm, we read, I would have despaired. Now this is an NASB, New American Standard. It's not in some other Bibles. Some Bibles say I would have fainted, or I did faint. Uh, I would have despaired. Um, I like this translation because it connects with what comes right after it. After stating the correct place for fear is Yahweh, that that's the correct place to focus in fear, it's interesting that David admits that he's actually on the edge of losing heart. He's on the edge of despair. When somebody says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, and says all these amazing things, and then admits, I am just about done. I've just about given up. I find that statement interesting, but I also find that statement very encouraging. Because I feel like this sometimes too. I feel like I'm just about done. I'm just about ready to give up. Despair is um, way too loud in my life right now. I feel like that sometimes. David admits it. But rather than lose heart in this psalm, he says, I would have despaired unless I would have seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So instead of despairing, he actually reminds himself of something that happened already. The goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now this to me seems like one of the best parts of this psalm. Is to say when you feel like you're going to despair, look at what God has done. Most likely you can look at what God has done in your own life. The goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This isn't about pie in the sky goodness. This isn't about eternity. Eternity will be good for those who follow Jesus, of course. But this is about the here and now. This is about being stuck in a cave in the dark and just about at despair and saying, I remember the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I remember the goodness of the Lord in my life. I remember having a fight with this huge guy named Goliath where I had no chance of winning. And I won. The goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I don't think David's attitude was that of arrogance. It wasn't, oh yeah, I don't have to despair because I'm amazing. I think it was actually the opposite. It was, I don't have to despair 
because I have confidence in God. It says that earlier in the passage. It says, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Now for me, there's a difference between confidence and arrogance, or even between confidence and certainty. Uh, I think they're quite different. Confidence to me is focused on something outside of myself. I'm confident that this stage will hold me up. <laughs> That's nothing to do with me. And I feel like when we talk about confidence in God, it's that way. In fact, I heard a quote recently that is this. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite of faith. If you have certainty, you actually don't need faith. That's encouraging to me as well, because in the land of the living, where the goodness of the Lord is, there's confidence. In spite of this, I am confident that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So finally, at the end of this psalm, and I know we skipped a lot of stuff, uh, but at the very end of this psalm, the writer tells us to wait. Is it possible that one of the strongest acts of faith is to wait? I'm going to say that again. Is it possible that one of the strongest acts of faith is to wait? Have you ever thought of waiting as something active? I think it is here. Last Christmas, my wife and I were uh, trying to get to Kelowna via airplanes. And if you've ever traveled over Christmas, you know that it's a little unpredictable. So we're sitting uh, in Calgary at the airport, and good news is we were really late getting out of Saskatoon, but the flight out of Calgary, they were all late. They were canceling them like crazy. But they were tricking us because they had a sign there that said, um, it's late by 30 minutes. <laughs> then at the end of 30 minutes, they added another 30 minutes. And they kept doing that, and it was hours. And we did actually finally get to Kelowna, which is really good. It was important that we were there. But it just kept tricking us, and I felt like this is such non-active waiting. If they would have said, it's going to be delayed three hours, we might have gone and done something. But they didn't. They just kept changing it every 30 minutes. <laughs> Anybody experienced that? It's a trick. Um, the waiting that David is talking about is not like that. It's not sitting around. It's not passive. It's active. David says be strong, but it's not because David is strong. It's because of the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's why he can wait, even in the pitch dark. It's counterintuitive. We don't wait because we are weak. Sometimes we are weak because we don't wait. So as we come to the end of this uh, psalm this morning, I look back at that a, a picture of a cave again. So this is a cave where you've got light coming in. If, if I look at this picture, I feel like, okay, I don't know how you're going to get to that place because you're down below and you have to have some confidence in the land of the living for sure. But as you're here this morning, um, I, don't, I don't know what your situation is, circumstance. I don't know if you're in despair, in a cave, in a slightly 
dimly lit cave, or everything's great for you. I don't know what your circumstances are this morning, but my suspicion is that for some of us this morning, there's some despair happening. Uh, There's some challenges in our lives, and we're wondering how we're going to cope. How are we going to make it? Um, Consider the Lord as light in your darkness. What does that look like? Consider the Lord as stronghold, as defender of your life. Remind yourself about the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Maybe even the goodness of the Lord in your life. Like the psalmist, remember that you cannot save yourself, but that you need the Lord, the light, so that you can wait in his goodness. I believe that um, that one key prerequisite to being a follower of Jesus is to be able to admit that you're broken. Some people would call that sin, that we have sin. Uh, another way maybe to talk about it is that you're broken. In fact, if you say, I'm not broken, I don't have any sin, you actually can't follow Jesus. At least not the way he wants you to. This morning, if you're a broken person, if you're in the darkness of a cave, um, I invite you to celebrate the goodness of the Lord and wait. Don't wait passively. Wait and be strong. I want to pray uh, for us, and I guess I especially want to pray for those of us in this room who might feel like we're in a cave in the dark. Um, And I want to invite you to maybe just have a few moments of silence as well as we wait before the Lord. Father, our God, Yahweh, Yeshua, Jesus. We declare that you are light. Just like the psalmist David did. I pray for those in this room who feel the pressure of darkness or maybe even of despair. I pray that you would shine the light of the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And that the result of that would be a strength in waiting. I pray that for I pray that for everyone here today, including myself. And that maybe we would develop lifestyles of strongly waiting for you of confidence that is not about arrogance or even certainty, but it's about you, about your salvation. I pray this in the powerful name of the light of the world, Jesus. Amen.